Hello and welcome to True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada, where we take a deep dive into mental health's many physiological and psychological aspects. This is the show for you if you're looking for motivation, inspiration, knowledge and solutions. And that's what we are all about here at True Hope Canada. And True Hope Canada is a mind and body based supplement company dedicated first and foremost to promoting brain and body health through non-invasive and nutritional means. For more information about us, please visit truehopecanada.com. Something new for the podcast is that we're going to conclude each episode with a specific question for each guest. That question will offer solution-based ideas wrapped around our guests' specialities. And today, the question is going to be, how do you begin to use your mind to help heal your mental health? Our guest on the podcast today is Thais Gibson. Now, Thais is an author, speaker, and leader in the personal development world. She's been recognized in many magazines, including Time Business News, The New York Post, Yahoo News, Success Magazine, and many, many more. All for her her work and research on the subconscious mind and personal transformation. Thais is certified in over 13 different modalities, including CBT, NLP, Um, somatic processing and trauma work. Through her academic training and client-based research, Thais has created renowned courses for personal development, growth and relationships. Today, we're going to be discussing the power of the subconscious mind in improving our mental health. Enjoy the show. Thais, welcome to True Hope Cast. How are you? What is going well? I am doing great. Thank you so much. Life is going great, learning a lot this year. And, and uh, you know, it was so nice to sort of chat prior to the show and and uh, have have really appreciated this year um, being on not just sort of an ongoing personal development journey as always, but also really digging a, a lot more into health and sort of the natural way of things and um, always appreciate learning. Amazing. Well, I've been through your website, I've been through your social media. We had a chat just before and there's some amazing things coming down the pipeline for you and your organization, which we can certainly touch on later on. But today we're going to be discussing the power of the subconscious mind in improving mental health, a huge thing that we are all about here at True Hope Canada. You know, we have incredible products to support people's mental health, but there's obviously a very powerful element of the subconscious mind being worked with to help people transform themselves from, let's say, a a damaged past person to somebody who can feel like that they can kind of do anything and feel empowered to, you know, take on just the small things in life. Because for a lot of people, like they can wake up in the morning and those small tiny things can just seem like absolute mountains to to overcome. So, and at the end of the podcast, we're going to be offering some solutions to a specific question, which is something new to the podcast. And that question is going to be, how do you begin to use your mind to help heal your mental health and just we're going to talk about a few like little steps there to help people immediately be able to step into let's say a better place but first of all can you just kick us off with a little bit of an introduction who you are and what it is that you do please yes so my name is Thais Gibson um I'm the founder of the personal development school so it's an online course hosting platform where we have a particular focus around attachment styles but a lot of the basis of all of PDS is that we really take personal development and it's personal development tools specifically for the subconscious mind so my background is I went sort of through the traditional way of school and psychology and and um then got really interested in hypnosis I was in one of my my um, classes one day and, and somebody said to me, oh, the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. And it was something I was learning. And, and you know, prior to that, I had been on this really intense struggle, um, as I share fairly openly with, with opiates um, since I was about 15 years old. And I spent like six years, you know, 
obsessing in that sort of addictive space. And, and a large part of that six years wondering, like, how did I get to this point? Like, what's going on for me? Tried AA, NA, went to outpatient rehab, all sorts of things. And um, it, it was always this daily struggle of I'd be like, this is the last time. This is the last day. I'm going to avoid this person. I'm going to delete their phone number from my phone. I'm going to, you know, and all these things. And then you just go back to the same patterns over and over and over again. And so I was fairly high functioning. Like I still made it off to university and was playing soccer in, in university, but really struggling behind closed doors. And it was when I heard somebody say to me, the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. It was like, this explains everything that I go through every day. It's my conscious mind saying this is the last time. And my subconscious is like, nope, we're interested in, in avoiding pain. We're going to go back to the painkillers. And so, you know, that just like I, I got so hungry to learn at that point um, and, you know, went down this whole sort of rabbit hole of um, did my first major certification in hypnosis and just really wanted to understand how the subconscious mind works and then proceeded to do about 13 other certifications and everything from like cognitive behavioral therapy to neurolinguistic programming to internal family systems, like all the sort of things out there and really got interested in how can we take some of these traditional tools, but utilize them in a way that like plugs into the subconscious mind specifically and start to see results in doing that. And so that was sort of my journey. Um, and then proceeded to run a, a client-based practice for, for about seven, eight years and um, had a two-year wait list and was like, okay, this isn't really working in terms of like, how do you serve enough people sort of thing? So realized it wasn't quite scalable in the way I wanted it to be. So we put together um, some, some online courses and, uh, we have a lot of students now. We have about, uh, 7,000 active students in there every day and, and, uh, lots of people sort of coming in there and, and doing a deep dive into like reprogramming childhood trauma, changing their attachment style to become more securely attached. And then really just like breaking bad habits, all those sorts of things by engaging the subconscious mind in the process. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. 7,000 students. Yeah. Obviously going from, you know, having four or five people a day because you know having one-on-one -on -one consultations is yes. a very difficult thing to do it's very draining physically and psychologically but being able to switch that to you know into a digital model and being able to serve so many people in such a positive way that's just amazing mm -hmm. i'd love to i'd love for you to just maybe explain to us what the conscious mind and the subconscious mind are and maybe the differences between and that quote that you mentioned before that the you the 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 conscious mind. Can you explain that again for me? Because yeah, yeah, yeah I, I understand what the, the two are and I understand the quote, but let's let's break it down a little, little for people who are who aren't, aren't too familiar with that. Absolutely. So we have our conscious mind, and our conscious mind is responsible for roughly three to five percent of our daily beliefs, thoughts, emotions, and actions. So our decisions throughout the day and our behaviors, and our subconscious and unconscious collectively are responsible for 95 to 97 percent. So our conscious mind is the, the aspect of self that we sort of identify as ourself, right? It's if you've ever seen the Freud iceberg diagram, the conscious mind is, is you know, as an analogy, is the tip of the iceberg that you see floating above the surface. And then underneath that, there's so much more going on. And that consists of our subconscious mind and our unconscious mind. And a lot of people get confused between those two. And you can think of like your subconscious mind as actually being the space that you can retrieve information from. So if you've ever been triggered, for example, and you're going, 
why did that upset me so much? And then you realize, oh, you know what? Because as a child, I went through something similar and that deeply affected me. And, and that retrievable information that you're not consciously aware of at the time, that's within your subconscious. And then your unconscious is sort of the deeper layers of the subconscious where it's much more difficult to retrieve that information. But all throughout the day, where so many of our patterns and habits and, and beliefs and emotions and all these different things are really coming from actually exist beneath the tip of the iceberg. And so I think we spend a lot of time, especially in like our traditional way of trying to change habits or especially from, you know, different mental health approaches, a lot of our mainstream system is designed to really target the conscious mind. And I think it's a huge reason why we see a lot of people struggle to break habits or create change, especially in an efficient manner, is because unless you target the subconscious mind in the process and actually recondition the patterns that are there and become consciously aware of them, then we're really living on autopilot. And your subconscious mind really produces those autopilot thoughts and habits and patterns. And, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to change something, you know, at the conscious level when the problem never existed there to begin with. It's really a subconscious problem that we have to be able to target. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It just made me think of the fact that um, when you made the analogy of the iceberg, it just, I was just thinking about some friends, people that I know that I could tell you a lot about a friend of mine called John. I could tell you a lot about like what I consciously know about him, what he's expressed to me. But then there's the side of him that I have no idea about. There's the history he has. There's the interactions he's had with his family, the childhood, the stuff that he can't even remember. Like there's so much more to this person that I think that I know that it's so complex. It's so deep. And as you say, if we're not looking at that subconscious part of an individual, we're not getting to the root cause of like what's going on because obviously everything's kind of like, pre-programmed in there things that you know thoughts feelings behaviors that we exhibit today and then now has most likely been programmed from decades ago that we don't even really realize it so if we are just working on our conscious selves in the now we're we're not getting to the root cause and we're not going to be able to make any sustainable change that's going to change us significantly in the future Absolutely. And so that's been, and it started with sort of my own personal experiences. You know, I grew up in this sort of dynamic where it was like, oh, okay, you struggle with addiction. You're going to struggle your whole life. It's always going to be a fight. It's always going to be a battle. And that was a, a lot of the messaging that I got. And thank goodness, you know, one of the programs I actually got as a child was to always kind of question things and to be able to really like, you know, if there's a will, there's a way sort of patterns of thinking. And so I was like, there's no way. Like, I, I remember being 18 at the time thinking, like, this is a daily struggle for me. I can't live my whole life in this daily battle. Like, there's got to be another way to live and to be and to behave. And so when that, when I came across that quote, I was like, I knew instinctively in that moment, this is going to be a key that unlocks a whole bunch of different things. And the funny part is that you know, I think because we don't grow up hearing about the subconscious mind too much, and it's not like a really, you know, common concept that we're exposed to, you would be surprised at how easy it is to reprogram your subconscious mind once we understand the patterns of what exists there. And I think that we think it to be this really complex, crazy, sort of ambiguous thing. But when you actually dig into it, you'll see that really the roots are that we have subconscious beliefs. And there's really common core ones there that we can dissect and realize, hey, we should shed this sort of belief system here. 
We have subconscious needs that really have a massive role on how we make decisions and how we um, prioritize things in our lives and how we spend our money and where we put our focus. And, and when we understand those things and then actually design our lives to be in alignment with those things, we actually have a lot less resistance, a lot less sabotage and procrastination around stuff. Um, and then we have subconscious emotional patterns that are familiar and, and a bit of a comfort zone there, subconscious patterns with boundaries. But really the two major things it boils down to are your subconscious limiting beliefs and your subconscious needs. And when you can really just dissect those two areas, a lot of different things open up for us. Interesting. What does the what does the research tell us about the subconscious mind and how people actually get into a state of, say, psychological ill health? Yes, it's a great question. I mean, there is some great research on this, particularly there's a whole bunch of people, but but I love Dr. Gabor Mate's work around this. He has a great book called When the Body Says No, if you've ever heard about this. Yeah. And I think like on a really fundamental level, there's just, you can't separate out the body and mind, right? We know, for example, that, you know, there's a, a study done at the University of Southern California's Neuroimaging Institute, and it talks about how we have roughly 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day. And roughly 50,000 of those thoughts are repeated thoughts. Yeah. Um, you know, our, our subconscious sort of autopilot thoughts and the way we're sort of thinking and perceiving different things. And, you know, when you think of your thoughts, what happens is when you have these different thoughts, thoughts produce an emotional response. So if I'm thinking thoughts about how I'm not good enough and I'm never going to succeed in life, you know, I'm going to feel a certain way. And then we know those emotions are made up of neurochemical reactions. And we know that those neurochemical reactions can even, under states of stress, put us, for example, into sympathetic nervous system mode, that fight or flight mode. And we know that there's a huge impact of being in sustained sympathetic nervous system mode in terms of our health, our immune system, all of these different things. And on top of that, we know that, you know, if we're constantly having these sorts of cortisol responses because we're thinking stressful thoughts, feeling stressful things, and then having a stress response as a result. I mean, there's a, a massive impact on our health. And what I found over the years, you know, sort of anecdotally is that, um, you know, so many individuals who have these constant streams of negative thinking because they derive these programs from childhood and perhaps being exposed to more significant childhood trauma. I mean, it doesn't just impact their mental health, but they're they're exhausted all the time. Their their physical well-being is depleted. And so I think it's so important to recognize these things really deeply go hand in hand. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, the realization that their thought patterns that say, I am not good enough, and that repeats over a thousand, ten thousand times a day, and it starts becoming a significant belief, and it starts becoming per part of your personality. And you, you know, you don't work harder in your job. You don't strive because you don't think you're good enough to to get there. That is a physical pattern within your brain. It's physical matter of neurons and connections in your brain that have been created, been so solidified to the point where they are automatic because they just fire and wire. Right? <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's, that's happened over time. That's like, you know, it's like creating a building, creating a house. But if you've created that house, you can knock that house down and you can create a new house. You know, you can create a new thought process that's completely opposite to that belief that you have basically self-created over many, many years. And it just go, it just makes me think about, it just makes me think about the experience I have with True Hope and our products here that so many people worldwide are unbelievably deficient in so many different nutrients, minerals, vitamins, antioxidants, etc., coming into their body. And if they're unable to replace their neurological chemistry with good quality ingredients, building blocks to build this house, to build this neuropathway, then people are really going to 
struggle in the end because yeah if you're not consuming enough fats for example your brain's going to suffer if you're not con con um, consuming enough good quality proteins muscles going to suffer and so on and so on so as we look at mental health we must be looking at what the brain is receiving through nutrition and whether it's adequate and i just wonder like so many people who end up like becoming cripplingly ill because of a psychological disorder how much of that is the fact that they've not been consuming the right ingredients to get their brain functioning and working optimally. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with you. And and definitely my area of expertise is in the psychological field. But I mean, everything I've learned and personally read and researched about health, I, I really couldn't agree more. And it's interesting because you were saying, you mentioned like how these neural pathways fire and wire. And, you know, you probably hear these, these ideas, oh, it takes 21 days to create a habit, you know. And that's because it takes roughly 21 days to actually create strong new neural pathways and replacement of old ones. And when we divest from things, so when we stop feeding the same narratives over and over again. Neural pathways also atrophy over time in a very similar way to how muscles atrophy. And so you'll see that when we stop reinvesting in these dynamics, we can really create change. And so if we talk, for example, about reprogramming these ideas, right, you have this, let's say some, there's, there tends to be like 18 major common core beliefs um, that really have a massive impact on how we think. And, and these beliefs lead to thought patterns. So for example, I'm not good enough. We may think thoughts like I'm not interesting enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not, you know, all these different, I'm not enough extensions, right? The thoughts that sort of spring off of the belief. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that um, we have other dynamics around this. I will be abandoned is a big one. I will end up alone is a big one. I am unworthy. I will be betrayed. I'm trapped, helpless, powerless. Like you see these really common root sort of tree trunks of the belief. And the subconscious mind, you know, when we try to outwork these beliefs, like you said earlier, you know, we're not born with these things. They get conditioned into us. And hence, we can obviously recondition them. And so what it actually requires from a subconscious perspective is repetition and emotion. And so wherever we can, you know, sort of leverage repetition and emotion, as well as imagery, really, because the subconscious mind doesn't speak language, it speaks in emotion and imagery. So for example, um, if I were to say to you, don't think of the pink elephant, you know, <laughs> you think of the pink elephant, your subconscious probably pictures the pink elephant, because that's the language of your subconscious. And your conscious mind hears a do not, but your subconscious doesn't really, those, that type of language doesn't land with the subconscious. So when we're trying to rewire old ideas, what we have to do is for that 21-day reprogramming period, and there's many different tools, but this is just one simple one, is we can feed the opposite of that belief. So I am good enough. And we have to come up with pieces of evidence for why, because evidence is the container for emotion. So if you say, okay, because I graduated with this degree or because I show up this way as a father or I show up this way as a husband or I'm proud of these three things that I did today. When you're seeing the evidence for why you're good enough, every time you pluck out those pieces of evidence, it actually elicits an emotional response. You see yourself as a father and what it feels like to be a good father or you see yourself as a husband and how you show up for your wife and care for your family. And there's these small emotional responses. So what you're doing is every time you find evidence that opposes that original limiting belief, and let's say you pick five a day for 21 days, that repetition plus emotion refires new neural pathways that go against this original belief system. And as you keep refeeding it for 21 days or so, you actually have these new core beliefs that, that outweigh and, and sort of outbalance that old dynamic or paradigm of thinking. 
That's really cool. Yeah, I think the majority of those thoughts that 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 become so repetitive in people's minds that let's call them negative, some of them are just like random neurons just firing. Obviously, like it's very you're not you're not thinking about thinking that I'm not good enough. It's just fires, right? And it's like especially when you're feeling tired or hungover or nutrient deficient or you've just had a really crappy day those are the thoughts that come up right and obviously like if it's very difficult in the moment to sit back analyze that thought and think you know is there actually any evidence to 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 um to counteract to counteract just to make is, is that is that comment valid yeah. you're like no i am good enough you know i did all this i've done all these amazing things i just had a really bad day like it's all right like i can be and then that's basically stopping that thought in its process evaluating it and having a completely different um behavior rather than that thought coming up and then me ending up going like you know eat three tubs of ice cream because the behavior is like i want to be alone and i want to eat my pain away you know which is obviously a super common thing for a lot of people but be having the actual um let's say conscious awareness of the subconscious thought coming in and not overtaking my emotional regulation and then my behavior regulation by like allowing me to isolate myself stay away from people and then like you know maybe eating really bad foods it's so interesting that it just takes that like little step of creating a space of response to that whole situation rather than like we just automatically react and then we're already down the shops eating the ice cream on the drive home Absolutely. And so, so that's another form of reprogramming. It's a form of pattern interruption, right? Where you're able to observe consciously that subconscious fired out autopilot thought and then actually question it and equilibrate it, right? You're able to say, no, I am good enough. I'm just having a bad day. And you're able to really stop that from refiring in, in the same way. But, you know, you're probably very aware. And I find a lot of people, um, you know, are not even aware of these subconscious thoughts. It's, they're not even able to really catch them in real time a lot of the time until they've gone down the thought rabbit hole for too long. And, and so the analogy I often give people is like, you can imagine we have like BTEA, beliefs, thoughts, emotions, actions. And you can imagine that your beliefs are like the tree trunk. And then your thoughts are the tree branches that sort of spring off the tree trunk. So if you think I'm not good enough, you think I'm not good enough at my job, or I'm not good enough as a, as a husband, or, you know, you, we tell those stories. And then the, the emotions are sort of the leaves, right? Then we have this emotional output. And then to your point, exactly what you were just saying is then we have an automatic action to try to cope with our emotional state. And this whole train, the beliefs, thoughts, emotions, actions is usually all on autopilot for most people until we start actually trying to consciously observe and connect. And so when we have a lot of these actions that take place, it's so interesting because I often say to people like there's no actual such thing as self-sabotage. Because what's actually happening is your conscious mind, when we experience self-sabotage, it's actually your conscious mind intending one thing and your subconscious mind intending something else and your subconscious just wins because that's how it goes. And so you may say, for example, I'm not going to come home and eat the ice cream today. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm trying to eat healthier. But then if you go home, you have that whole thought process on the way home. You're not consciously aware of it. You feed into all the I'm not good enough stories. You get home, you're in a bad mood. And then if you're conditioned coping mechanism since childhood, for example, or since some period of your life is to eat the tubs of ice cream, then you go home, you're in that emotional state. You've got that automatic coping mechanism. You ate the ice cream. And then guess what happens next for people? Then they go, 
oh, I'm not good enough. I ate the ice cream. <laughs> and the cycle continues. But really, you know, on the point of root cause, how we start breaking this cycle up is to be able to consciously observe. And we can try to disrupt that pattern in the moment by just questioning it and catching it. But if we want to plug in so that we just have a daily routine to really speed up the process, we can plug into belief reprogramming with those five pieces of countering act counter acting evidence for the 21 day period. You see, you mentioned that being able to consciously observe yourself is obviously a key part of reprogramming or repairing thought patterns. Um, what do you think it is that keeps us on autopilot and basically keeps us unconscious to the behaviors that we exhibit? Because people go through their whole lives before they let's say come to the realization that they are good enough and they want to do something about their previous thought patterns because it's led them to dark places. But what, what do you think it is that the key things that keep people on that autopilot, not wanting to be aware of their, their conscious ability to be able to change these things? What, what is it that keeps us stuck in the dark? It's an amazing question. You know, I think part of it is that we get so conditioned to be externally focused. So we grow up in the system of punishment reward or classical conditioning, right? If you've ever heard of like the Pavlov's dogs experiment where the dog is trained to salivate by every time they ring the bell, the dog associates the bell with food because the dog would be fed after. And, and when we think of that, we all get conditioned through punishment reward. And what that does is it perpetuates this very external focus into our external world, not our internal world. And so a lot of individuals, you know, if we're told you're punished for doing this thing, you're rewarded for doing this, we're constantly being conditioned to focus on what people think of us. Are we getting approval from the outside world? Are we fitting in? And we have a lot of that system really, you know, of socialization built out in, in sort of hidden ways throughout our society, like the school system, our jobs, performance reviews. I mean, it, it's everywhere because it's a system of conditioning we grow up in. But then there's something called the overload principle in psychology, which is really interesting. And sort of on point with um, some of what you do. And the overload principle in psychology says whenever we are overloaded, we have a much harder time becoming consciously aware. We, really, we break more into the subconscious mind and different systems or forms of being overloaded include things like being hungover, being exhausted, not sleeping enough, not having proper nutrients, not being in a proper, properly healthy state. Like if anybody, anybody's ever been in chronic pain or been chronically fatigued, you, it's hard to do this work. It's hard to self-observe. And so I think it goes back to this idea of how interconnected the body and mind are because it's actually difficult, you know, in the system we're in to begin with, but it's, you know, exceedingly more difficult when we're unable to actually feel okay enough to be able to stay conscious and not be in this overloaded state where we're heavily relying even more so on our subconscious autopilot habits. Yeah, there seems to have been in our Western culture a big attack on consciousness and awareness and the individuality, the individuality that we have as people, like, as you say, we love being busy. We love being the busiest person that we know and significant, a significant overload. Right. And when would you have the ability to sit and internalize anything, let alone your deepest thoughts? to actually be able to process them. And, you know, we don't learn anything about meditation in school. We don't learn anything about breathe, breath work in school. We don't learn anything about, you know, being quiet and sitting with your thoughts and your mind and how to process them, what those thoughts mean. You know, we don't do any of that in our Western culture. There's obviously very ancient practices that still go on today and, you know, in, in other traditions that certainly do do that. 
but we obviously have this big thing in our culture of distraction, cell phones, social media, work, busyness, hobbies. You just got to go, go, go. If you've got any spare time and we're not filling up with something, we're failing, right? So how can we ever find, you know, I, you know I, I'd say I'm, I'm quite a busy person. I've got two young kids. I find it difficult to do the meditation work that I, I used to do four years ago before I had kids, you know. It's very, very difficult. It's certainly not impossible, but that is one of the biggest practices that, that, that helps my health, helps me figure out where I am right now. But we just don't harmonize that at all in any part of, you know, from, from, kid, from kids in school to, to adults. I, I, know, I, I guess maybe it's changing a little bit with some work that's going on out there, but it's certainly like, it's certainly not enough because we need to be trained at a young age to be able to analyze our thoughts and recognize what they are and recognize that other people have these thoughts. You know, why is this kid angry at me? Oh, maybe it's because they've, you know, they've had a bad day or something rather than, you know, we, don't, we just don't think about things like that. And when you're, when you're talking about the internal and the external, yeah, we are so unbelievably focused on the external. How are we ever going to be able to like sit and be with ourselves and listen to ourselves? And yeah, people aren't super comfortable with sitting in meditation for a couple of minutes because their body their subconscious mind controlling the body wants to get them up wants to get them doing something and it's a very very uncomfortable unfamiliar unpredictable place to be so yeah it's like how do we how can we how can we begin to reverse that to get people to start being comfortable with their internal selves so what an incredible question you just asked so so you know um you raised a couple of really interesting things so one of the first ones is the more we are in sympathetic nervous system mode um the more busy we are the more we have all these things on our plate throughout the day we're juggling many things at once i mean the more likely we are to be in this low level fight or flight mode and when we're in that mode very hard to sit with yourself. And when we actually have a, a history of trauma or walking on eggshells a lot growing up or going through things that felt really uncomfortable and outside of our comfort zone, also the more likely we are to be in sympathetic nervous system mode. And a second thing that I, I found personally as somebody who's done a lot of meditation throughout the years and really, really huge, huge advocate of, of meditating is when I was coming out of um, addiction and I started meditating, one of the first things that was this huge light bulb moment for me was no wonder I want to numb myself all day. Because as soon as I would sit with myself in quiet, my internal dialogue was miserable. My internal dialogue was like, you're this, you're that, you're never going to do this or that. Or, you know, it was just worrying about the future angry about the past, you know, just all my internal dialogue. And I was thinking, no wonder I want to numb all day. Like, no wonder I want to self-escape because my internal world is what I'm trying to escape from. Super interesting. And came, yeah. And that came from a history of growing up in a household where there was a lot of chaos and a lot of different challenges that I faced at a young age and internalized and sponge a lot of those things up. And so, you know, realizing that there's a couple different ways of doing this we can regulate our nervous system function through things like meditation, through breath work, through um, yoga, through light exercise, through a whole bunch of different sort of possibilities that exist there um, to put us more into rest and digest mode. Then our thoughts slow down. It feels more comfortable and more safe to be in our bodies. And then from there, we can start self-observing more effectively and feeling more comfortable doing so. Or another entry point into it is also if we start recognizing what's going on in our internal dialogue and doing a lot of that reprogramming work of these core beliefs that are plaguing us, 
um, and we start doing that, what you'll see is that as a result, your thoughts become less busy. Your thoughts become less frustrated and stressed and negative. And then it becomes less scary to sit with yourself because there's not a whole bunch of things that you're running from all day and trying to self-avoid. And if you think of it as like, you know, somebody's following you around all day, all day long, and they are telling you all the things that you're terrible at or not good enough at or all the reasons you're going to fail or you're unlovable or whatever it might be, you know, in that particular instance, like, of course, you want to escape from that person. Of course, you want to avoid that. And so when we clean that up within the relationship to ourselves, it also becomes safer to start embarking on a meditation journey. And I find that nervous system regulation tools or somatic work combined with um uh, a lot of the reprogramming of, of our thinking has a very, very powerful effect in a, in a very short window. Yeah, I think being able to reconnect your mind with your body in a very conscious manner is a really beautiful healing process for a lot of people because they're usually very separate, they're very split. And yeah, for a lot of people, their subconscious mind is controlling their body to go from place to place, you know, especially if you, you know, if you have very similar day every morning you know you wake up you get outside of the right side of the bed you put the coffee on you you do this you do that and then you repeat you come home and you do that kind of every single day like what part of your conscious mind is really controlling much of that like your subconscious mind is is, is doing a lot of it so yeah becoming conscious is absolutely huge and i love your what you said about consciously becoming to observe consciously huge i absolutely love that that's a big big first step I want to ask you about um, a connection between the subconscious and trauma and how and how our body responds in conditions like PTSD, for example. Yeah, so it's a fantastic question again. Um, I love these questions. Well, <laughs> so what happens is, you know, I think we think of trauma as being this very extreme thing. And in the case of PTSD, generally you are looking at a few, you know, one or a few very specific cases of extreme trauma. And you know how we talked earlier about how, you know, the subconscious mind gets reprogrammed through repetition plus emotion? Well, the key ingredient is, is emotion over repetition because you can acquire a really negative core belief through one experience of substantial trauma. So let's say as an example that, um, you know, I never grew up, let's pretend in a, in a home where I felt unsafe. Um, and let's say I felt generally safe in my world and in my personal experiences through life. And let's pretend, God forbid, that one day I'm in a big building and there's a huge earthquake and, you know, I see all this chaos and I just barely survive because of how emotionally potent that one experience is. I'm likely to walk away from that experience with a new core belief that says I am unsafe because this random, very scary thing happens out of the blue. And what the mind is constantly trying to do is it's trying to interpret its experiences so that it can gain a sense of certainty, which is one of our basic needs. So the mind will constantly project meaning onto things to try to be able to put it in a box, understand it, gain the certainty. And so in doing so, we form these limiting beliefs, we form these core beliefs. So I have this scary incident in the earthquake and I make it mean I am unsafe. And now that belief has formed at a subconscious level because of how strong that emotion was. And now what's likely to happen is I'm gonna go through life carrying this core belief of I am unsafe. So I may constantly worry that I am unsafe. I may fear being unsafe, you know, doing things on a daily basis. And, and because of how emotional that experience is, it can imprint directly. 
So we can have PTSD in that kind of circumstance. We can also have complex PTSD, which is, you know, a lot more common, I think, than than it's necessarily being shown right now. Um, I think a lot of people are probably walking around with undiagnosed complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which tends to essentially be that if in childhood you had a significant degree of lower level traumas, but they were more repetitive, mm-hmm. then it can have similar, a very similar impact on the subconscious mind as PTSD in terms of how you feel about yourself nightmares, you know, confidence issues, um, flashbacks, inability to trust, inability to feel safe in your world, your environment, excessive time spent in sympathetic nervous system mode. There's a whole bunch of sort of outputs of that. But generally, when we go through trauma, the mind is a way to try to, you know, adapt to that trauma, gives the trauma meaning. It creates this set of beliefs or single belief at the subconscious level of mind. And then the subconscious mind is like the lens we see and interact with the world through. So then what happens is, you know, if we believe I am unsafe, I am helpless, I'm powerless, I'm trapped, and these are some very common core beliefs that come out of traumatic events, for example, then we carry that with us in our subconscious mind on a daily basis. And those core beliefs are likely to have a massive impact on those 60 to 70,000 thoughts we have per day because they provide sort of the root level lens that we're going to interact with the world through. And you'll also see these will be the most likely conclusions we jump to. So if I'm, you know, if I have a huge core wound of feeling trapped, you know, if, if somebody tells me to do something I don't feel like doing, I'm not going to be like, oh, I don't feel like doing that. And I'm free to set a boundary. I'm going to say this person's trying to trap me. I'm trapped. And so these core beliefs that we take from past events, we carry with us. We constantly see the world through that lens. And we're much more likely to also project our old trauma onto our present and future experiences until we actually have the capacity to do the reprogramming work. Super interesting. It, you just made me think of the fact that like whether you, somebody's had like a rather a really big trauma in their lives, like the earthquake um, example you just gave. And funnily enough, I think we have at least two um, peer reviewed research journals on PTSD and earthquake use and the use of Empower Plus in those individuals that experience the earthquake and how their symptoms significantly reduced on the product. I'll send you those papers because I know you're super science and you love to read that. It's very, very interesting you brought that topic up. But whether you had a really big trauma like that, like, you know, that happened in the now or there were things happened repetitively when you were younger, all of those things engage your sympathetic nervous system, which is going to deplete your nutrition capabilities. Like, say you've got that big trauma and you just like, you're basically scared and worried like all the time your body has to ramp up its um, burning of fuel to actually make you feel like anxious and worried, right? Your body's gonna have to galvanize all of its resources to make you feel that way as a, as a safety response, right? Yeah. And if we're not replacing that nutrition, whether that's through really good food or really good quality supplementation, which I would highly recommend, um, you'll never go, you're always gonna be like depleted. It's like having some, an app on your phone that you can't get rid of that is constantly working draining your battery and you're unable to replace it quick enough and even with the small traumas that happened let's say 20 30 years ago they are still subconsciously working and depleting you in those moments of maybe when you're susceptible to um experiencing similar experiences when those those symptoms come up for you so it's super interesting you're being so I, I I thought about that before, but like with that that big thing happening or that small thing happening, regardless, most people are walking around in a very sympathetic state, meaning their body is not really digesting their food properly, all of their nutrition all of their like energy and 
um, is not anywhere near their digestive tract. It's going to be at their extremities, you know, in that fight or flight response. And we're just going to be massively depleted for long periods of the time. So it just goes to show that there's a very, very complex, um, beautiful synergy within a lot of these PTSD disorders, anxiety, depression, bipolar, etc., and the fact that loads of people are massively nutrient deficient because they're just burning their nutrition at an unbelievably strong subconscious rate. And, and you know, health I'm very interested in, but it's not my area of expertise, very much mental health, the mind. But I would also imagine that the more depleted you are, um, from your your nutrients and, and minerals that the more likely you are so to be in sympathetic nervous system mode. I imagine it becomes a vicious cycle because your body's probably feeling like it's exhausted and, and needing these resources and it's probably putting you in this more survival state to, you know, be wrapped up to be able to go find those nutrients. And I imagine it just comes full circle that way from a health perspective as well. Yeah, and you, when, you're, when you've gone through something traumatic or you're in a very stressful state, you don't really go for, unless you're super conscious and aware, you don't really go for the super healthiest nutritional, nutritious <laughs> food, right? You okay. go for the junk, you go for the quick stuff because you're in a sympathetic state. Your blood sugar is going to be all over the map. Oh you're going to go for those sugary foods. You're going to try and get yourself back up there. And you're replacing um, the nutrition that's being burnt off with, let's just say, poor quality nutrition, say like fast food, for example. So you're not giving your brain the ingredients necessary to produce good quality neurons. Um, you're not giving the rest of your body the ability to create good quality structure. You're kind of creating a house out of straw rather than being able to like replace those nutrients with something high quality that's high quality it's bioavailable it's got all the nutrients that you would absolutely need you don't have to have good quality digestion you could be in a stressful state and still take empower plus and you're going to be able to absorb it because it's in such a bioavailable form so yeah it's just super interesting that we we have that connection yeah it's, it's very incredible for sure um what other modalities um have you seen support people when it comes to healing like their mental health. Obviously, you've got this unbelievable program and you've mentioned things like meditation, you've mentioned yoga, you've mentioned breath work. Do, do you find like all of these benefit or is it kind of on an individual basis? It's so interesting. So a lot of the work I do that's, that's focused is around attachment styles. And so there's sort of different attachment styles. There's four groups. Everybody has an attachment style. There's a securely attached style. And generally, if you grow up with very limited trauma and, and pretty healthy patterns, you're more likely to be securely attached. And then we have our three insecurely attached styles, our anxious preoccupied attachment style, who in their relationships, family relationships, romantic friendships, um, tends to be uh, very needy, clingy, afraid of being abandoned, alone. Um, then we have our dismissive avoidance who tend to be a little bit more, they need their space and their time and their freedom in relationships and they may not want to commit as much to things. Mm -hmm. And then we have our fearful avoidant attachment styles who sort of share a bit of the anxious and avoidant side, but they generally are exposed to more trauma. And so they've got a lot of trust wounds, a lot of fears of getting close and yet they yearn for it at the same time. And it's interesting because one thing I found over the years is that different attachment styles actually take to different tools in, in a more effective manner. So I find that there's sort of these groupings, right? And securely attached individuals, they generally have less trauma to begin with. So we can sort of leave them out of this conversation. But when we look at the three insecurely attached styles, um, dismissive avoidance tend to be very out of their bodies. They tend to be very disconnected. They're very mental and intellectual because 
usually what causes dismissive avoidant attachment style is childhood emotional neglect. And sometimes that can be something that flies under the radar. Sometimes neglect isn't so overt. Sometimes there can be food on the table, structure in the home, no fighting, but there's just a total lack of emotional attunement or bonding that takes place. And as a result, children feel generally unsafe in that kind of home and they tend to really repress their emotional selves because there's no place to really express that and, and get rewarded for it. And so I find that a lot of somatic work tends to be very effective for this type of personality. Um, so a lot of actually like, you know, guided meditations, but really practicing embodiment, right? Practicing somatic, um, you know, noticing the sensations in your body, getting back in touch with what it means to feel an emotion and what since, because all emotions are, are sensations in the body, right? That's all that it is. It's a reflection of the mind and the body. So if I think I'm not good enough, and if that makes me feel sad, sadness would feel like a hollowness in my chest, a heaviness on my shoulders, maybe a little bit of knots in, in my stomach or a ball in my throat. And so emotions are just sensations. So I, I find that there's different entry points for different personalities. Somatic work tends to be very important for people who are mildly dissociated or, or really disconnected from being in their body and experience their emotions. I find that cognitive behavioral therapy and subconscious reprogramming tends to be extremely effective um, for our fearful avoidant attachment style. So the ones who have a lot of chaos and trauma as children, that was my attachment style. And, and it was extremely powerful for me to realize my thoughts, to challenge them, to question them, and then to work to actually take CBT and drive it down into the subconscious mind where it could be sped up essentially and become more effective by engaging CBT with different principles of, of hypnosis and suggestibility. Um, meditation, I find to be really effective as well, because a lot of fearful avoidance spend a lot of time in their, their sympathetic nervous system mode. Um, and then I find that with anxious, preoccupied individuals, um, learning to meet their own needs is extremely powerful. I think there's a lot to be said. Um, I mean, there's a lot of powerful tools out there. There's shadow work, there's internal family systems and parts work. I mean, there's so many incredible things, but I find that, um, a huge part of trauma, it can stay sort of like in this regenerated state. like, we have to imagine, for example, right? Let's say you had a trauma when you were eight years old and let's say you're still carrying it with you, you know, years and years later, decades later. Well, why? How is that possible? And what happens is, is the way a trauma stays with us is we have to keep refeeding it on autopilot without realizing. So you'll see, for example, our anxious preoccupied styles, to sort of go down the rabbit hole, the, the clingy person in the relationship, um, they tend to be the types who they have a huge abandonment wound, but they continue to self-abandon. Mm -hmm. And that's actually them recreating the trauma in the relationship to self. And so we tend to take a lot of our traumas and how we were treated as children in regards to our needs, we treat ourselves that way. So if you were your needs were not emotionally met as a child, you're not meeting your emotional needs as an adult. So we we become suggestible in that sense, right? We tend to take trauma, we recreate it in the relationship to self. And there's a lot of really powerful benefit that I don't think is talked about enough in terms of individuation, like learning to actually say, well, what needs were not met as a child? Was it validation? Was it presence? Was it connection? Was it somebody to make me feel supported or protected or seen or heard? And then how can I actually reparent or re-nurture these things in the relationship to myself? And, you know, so needs meeting and actually breaking that trauma in the relationship to self through behaviorally implementing new patterns in the way that we treat our own needs is also a very, very powerful tool. And so, 
you know, at a high level, I would say different people respond to different practices in different ways. Um, but for me, the, the big ones are subconscious reprogramming, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, somatic processing and, and embodiment work, and then individuation work and reparenting in terms of us being able to meet our unmet needs and, and doing that work from, from childhood. How much of um, how much of that work? I'm just thinking about the type of there's so many different individuals are going to come visit your website and then start working with you. Is there a particular type of person that comes and does visit your website and takes that plunge? Because you know you people people struggle with themselves for a very long period of time. But what's that? What's that switch? What's that moment where they decide to like sign up to something to invest their time to invest their money to invest their energy into starting to feel better? Do you see a pattern in those individuals that do take that, that that turn? I do see that the the big thing. So we have a lot of people who are fearful avoidance or anxious preoccupied, a lot of people who come in and, and they're more anxious and afraid and you know they're they're feeling their feelings a lot more and so they're they're recognizing how uncomfortable these feelings are but the way we set up the personal development school is you actually take a test when you before signing up so we have a free attachment style quiz and it determines your attachment style and then you get a report that tells you your biggest core wounds your biggest unmet needs the emotional patterns you'll you'll tend to struggle with the most the boundary issues you'll have and i think what happens is because people take that test and then feel very much like wow, this is me. These are all my patterns. How did it know this? And because it's very specific, um, then we actually have these course designs for them that are like, hey, we're going to start with the core wounds first. We're going to teach you how to reprogram your beliefs. Okay. We're going to start with the needs. We're going to do the needs work. Okay. We're going to start with the, then we'll go to the emotional regulation and nervous system work. And so we have it set up in a pathway that's designed to best impact the person themselves. Um, so it's a lot more individual and specific that way. But as a general overarching rule, we tend to, in terms of our demographics, have people who um, were exposed to, to a good bit more overt trauma growing up and and uh, who are probably sick and tired of feeling sick and tired and and uh, sort of ready to dive in and, and do that work. And I find as well that a lot of when we go through different things in, in childhood and they don't make sense or we're confused or we're frustrated or we're anxious or we're resentful, you know, understanding that there's also a way out of that that really engages the subconscious mind and it doesn't have to be this six-year process of healing or eight-year process of healing to recognize, hey, there's a sort of shortcut to doing that where you still have to put in the work, of course, but it doesn't have to be this like lifetime journey to feel good again, um, I think tends to be very encouraging for people. Yeah, there's a, there's a very positive part to like Google because a lot of people where they, they won't actually like go and ask their friends or family for support or help, but they'll they'll seek it in a search bar, right? And they'll find websites like yours, you know, or they'll search mental health supplements, depression supplements, what can I do for my mental health with supplements and our products will come up. So there's obviously some really powerful um, ways that that type of technology can help us out and i'm just looking at the quiz now i'm probably going to take that later on today and see <laughs> and see see uh see what results i get but i'll make sure that i link that in because yeah like those four attachment styles is very very interesting and that's a really great way for people to kind of gently get themselves in the door on this on that kind of step towards wellness and healing and yeah people who are sick and tired of being sick and tired you know um just coming up to like the 50 minute mark here. This has been awesome. So I just want to ask you the question that we were, we discussed at the top of the show. Cause I want to give people some, some, um, some tools that they can put into their lives literally like right now. So question was, how do you begin to use your mind to help heal 
your mental health. And I wonder if you've got a couple of things that you can you can give us to take away, please. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first things is, you know, I think when we look at how do we use our mind, what the most profound, at least in my experience, way of doing this is, is to use our conscious mind to start self-observing our subconscious mind, right? If we can start seeing what's there, I think a lot of people have this idea about healing and they're like, how do I heal something? Like, where do I start? What does it mean to heal? And I think healing first means recognizing our patterns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of our patterns can, they start, you know, rooted in our thoughts. Um, but they're also, you know, rooted in our needs that we're trying to meet at all times. So we spent a lot of time talking today about, you know, our thought patterns and doing that work. So I'm going to sort of touch on the needs for a moment here. And every single decision we make all day long, believe it or not, is an attempt to meet a need while working through a system of beliefs. And that's sort of a, a long concept to explain. But if I, for example, have a need for novelty, but if I believe that, you know, um, so many things in the world are unsafe and I'm unsafe out in the world, but I have this novelty need, I may, for example, try to meet the need for novelty through playing a video game, right? Because there's novelty there, but it's in a safe way. So we constantly have these needs and these beliefs interacting. But when we can start observing, like, what needs are really important to us? What are the things that I'm trying to meet through my unhealthy patterns? One thing you'll see is everything that we do that we consciously judge ourselves for, like, why did I eat the ice cream? Or why did I sabotage going to the gym? Or, you know, what's actually going on? What you'll see is everything we do is still trying to get a specific need met. And when we can start sort of pulling out what the needs are that we're trying to meet. So let's say, for example, we look at eating the ice cream, since that was the example from earlier. And, you know, when we eat ice cream, there's actually a whole bunch of needs that are being met. And our subconscious mind, when we can't get needs in direct ways, we'll start trying to rely on more and more indirect ways. So ice cream, when we look at food and our relationship to food, our earliest experience of food is our mother's breast milk, right? We're being breastfed. And in that process, there's a tremendous amount of oxytocin produced, which is the bonding neurochemical. And at the same time, we're being cared for, we're being held, we're being cradled, we feel a sense of comfort and safety. And so the deep subconscious emotional needs that food actually represents and that we've been conditioned with are that food equals emotional connection comfort and safety. And so it's really interesting because these different habits that we have that we find to be sabotaging habits, they're all actually just designed to get needs met for us. And what it's telling us, similar in a way, like in, in, in an, an analogy, would be like, we're, we're deficient in our needs. We're like, we're, we're nutrient deficient in our needs, right? So when you see, okay, I keep relying on ice cream, what's going on here that I'm just eating ice cream all the time or whatever habit it is that we're like, we don't like this habit. This is an unhealthy habit. What you'll see is it's actually an attempt for your mind to meet healthy needs that it's starving for. Mm -hmm. And so when we can start observing our unhealthy habits and instead of judging them, get really curious about them and be like, well, what does this meet for me as a person? Then what it's telling us is, hey, these buckets are empty. Your emotional connection, if we're eating ice cream every day all the time, my emotional connection needs are, are probably running on empty. My comfort needs, my safety needs are probably running on empty. How can I actually revamp my life to improve that overall? And when we start making those small steps and executing on that, it's actually a huge part of, of pulling away from these unhealthy patterns. And we're able to invest in healthier, updated strategies to get these old needs met that we tend to be starving for. So I find that to be a really powerful concept is use your conscious mind to observe your subconscious patterns, understand the needs that are trying to be there, and then proactively fill those needs buckets up so we don't have to rely on the unhealthy form of getting things done. 
Beautiful. Great advice. I think that's something people can just like literally get into right now. So I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Can you uh, let us know how people can connect with you, please? Yes. So um, we have the free attachment style quiz at personaldevelopmentschool.com. And then uh, I also have a YouTube channel where I put out a daily video. Um, and that is called Personal Development School dash Thais Gibson. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much, Thais, for coming onto the show. I feel like we could have spoken for hours, like especially on this attachment style. Maybe we get you back on the show and we can talk about that in a little bit more in depth. Very, very fascinating. But I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being here. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much for having me. I am glad. Thank you very much. Well, that is it for this episode of True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. We'll see you next week.